0: So, uh, King Hip here. Speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> trivia, I wonder what Victor Mature is doing tonight. Oh, there. Oh, that's enough. I don't have time for that stuff tonight. It's a. Uh, you know, uh, we've been getting uh, such a tremendous amount of uh, mail and uh, response about the shows that I've been doing the last couple of days, the last week or so, about my recent trip to the Antipodes. And in fact, uh, for those of you who, I, I get letters all the time from people who say, why did you go? I mean, it should be self-evident. You mean to tell me you don't feel the desire to go to Burma? <laughs> you don't feel the urge to go to to uh, Bangkok or to, to Siam or to uh, Karachi? I don't know. I'm amazed at the number of people who don't seem to feel any urge to leave Hackensack. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about putting Hackensack down or cutting out of Hackensack, but I am always surprised at the large number of people who just don't see any reason to uh, look at the rest of the world. And there are millions of them in America. It's a curious phenomena. However, uh, the only thing I can say about why I go, I go because it's there. To use one of those uh, old mountain climbing clichés, and I've always... Uh, ever since I was about 10 years old I've had a a tremendous sense of excitement this is a personal sense a tremendous sense of excitement uh, about just traveling Uh, I remember the first time I looked at Ohio when I was a kid we took a trip to Ohio and I must have been about eight or nine years old and I was staring out of the car window we passed over the Ohio line and I was astounded to realize I was looking at Ohio I kept saying to myself, that's Ohio, you know, because <laughs> I'd always heard about Ohio, you know. At the, here it was, it was Ohio. And people walking around and sweating and scratching doing everything else they did in Indiana that they did in, in Chicago, w- w- states which I had all lived with and grown up with. But I have never lost that sense of intense, almost uh, ecstasy that I feel when looking out of a window or walking down the street and saying to myself, Shepard, for crying out loud, this is Singapore. This really is Singapore. You know, people are walking around, and they got, they're selling harmonicas in the stores, and you go in, and you have a 7-Up or some ridiculous thing, and you see a great big sign that's 87 feet high, written in uh, Malayan or Melanesian, or whatever the language is there, and it's, a, it's a, an advertisement for a John Wayne movie. And you, see, you only know it because there's John Wayne looking vaguely oriental, incidentally. When they when the sign painters get up there, they always paint John Wayne with va- You know the fun little eyes, a little bit funny there. You ought to see how how Cary Grant looks in Bangkok on a on a giant sign there. Uh, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Somehow you feel that that they that they they're, uh, they're not exactly Chinese or Siamese. They're some vague aboriginal, strange. Uh, in between Polynesian race, no, they are. You can you can you recognize it as Cary Grant, but somewhere along the line he had an interesting grandmother. And then you look up there. Now, uh, I I have been debating. Of course, up to this point, I thought to myself a couple of days ago. I says, Well, I'm not going to talk any more about Australia, but so many things have come back to me. I've been looking over my notes of things that I I've uh, noticed and observed in Australia. I have. I seems that I've talked more about Bangkok than Australia. And to me, Australia is one of the truly most interesting countries I have ever visited. Uh, One night, and it's not going to be tonight, one night this week, I'm going to do a show on uh, on a piece of genuine amateur radio, DX, that I visited. A place called Lord Howe Island, which is the most southerly of all the great Pacific tropical islands. It's about four or five hundred miles from Sydney and is a genuine... Coral Island that is very rare, very rarely visited and there's only one amateur radio there, stationed there. Uh, there are about 150 people live on it and the, it was settled at about the time Pitcairn Island was settled. You remember the mutiny on the bounty and all that. And uh, it's impossible for you to emigrate there if you decide tomorrow you want to go live on Lord Howe Island. You can't. You can only visit it. Just like uh, they have uh, very strong rules about it and the natives who own the island, the people who have been there for uh, a couple hundred years, the families have remained unchanged. And uh, there is a boat that arrives there once every two months. It does not bring people, it just brings Kleenex and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and there is a plane that comes there once a week and brings maybe 25 people to look at it. And they get back on the plane and they go. Not many of them go actually out there. Sometimes the plane goes out and there's nobody there with the pilot and the mail. And the plane that goes out there is a World War II Sunderland uh, flying boat. fantastic place to visit, and uh, that's part of it. But you know, uh, just about two weeks ago, I'll tell you, two weeks ago, I am sitting in a coffee shop. When I travel, I have a habit of waking up very early in the morning. Maybe it's because... Uh, of the confusion of uh, sleeping and changing hours and all that. And also, I don't want to miss anything. I can sleep back in New York all the time, you know. And, and uh, I, I, I get up very early, four or five o'clock in the morning, and I see more dawns when I'm on an international trip than I will see the whole year combined back here in New York City. And I have a habit of getting up maybe four or five o'clock in the morning, maybe it's restlessness, who knows. And I go out on the streets. And I walk around, I watch the dawn come up, and I watch people start to go to work in the morning. Uh, ordinary people walking around. This is non-touristville, of course. It's gray, and you see guys wearing work jackets and carrying lunch buckets and walking and riding streetcars and, and uh, little motor scooters and one thing and another. And about 5 o'clock in the morning, I was walking around a tiny town just outside of Sydney, a town called Manly. Uh, Manly is on the Tasman Sea. Isn't that an exciting, uh, uh, an exciting name? The Tasman Sea. And it's gray. The, the, the morning was kind of gray. You could see the sun just beginning to peep up. Now, the day was going to be bright and clear and sunny. They're always bright and clear and sunny there. But at the crack of dawn, almost every place I've ever been is kind of gray. The sun is just coming up. And I could see all these houses and all these people sleeping and the palm trees kind of drooping. And there were hundreds of little souvenir shops. Now, this, these souvenir shops were not for American tourists. They were not for world tourists, in fact. They were for Australian tourists. Uh, it was kind of a resort, you know, where Australians... went. it would be like Long Branch, you know. Long Branch uh, is something like that. Or maybe a deal or a place like Neptune, New Jersey. Now, you know that international tourists do not go to Neptune... Uh, a man who has come all the way from, from France to see America does not immediately uh, jump on the ferry or jump on the boat or the train or whatever it is and head uh, hell-bent for election for Avon, New Jersey. He just doesn't do that. Who does go? Well, 18 million klutzes from Long Island. And a lot of guys from Ohio wind up there. And it, that's what I was in. I was in an Australian resort. And you'd be surprised what Australians think of in terms of when you talk about things like souvenirs. And I'm walking along here. Here the little dime stores. are all closed. They, all the shops, the first thing that hits you about stores in, in, in Sydney is that they're practically all, almost open air, Skip. They have open fronts where the whole front goes up. It's like Florida or California. wonderful sense of, of freedom and light and air. And uh, they have all kinds of little juice stands, but very different from the kind of juice stands we have here. Fruit is extremely plentiful in Australia. Bananas, especially around Sydney, are, uh, well, they're, they're, they they give them away, literally, because they grow hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of bananas all around Sydney. So bananas and pineapple and all that is very inexpensive there. And they have a drink that is ubiquitous. Uh, throughout all of that Sydney area, and they have little stands, almost like the little juice stands here in Times Square, but they're different. They're run, all of them are run by Greeks. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but they are. They're the Greek, who's not our Greek, is running it. And I, I went into this place. Uh, there were dozens of them all along there, and everyone had to, seemed the same guy was running it. And they take a pineapple. They'll take a half a pineapple, and they stick it into some kind of a blender-mixer thing. And blah! The whole pineapple goes down. It grinds it all up, and they put just a little touch of, of carbonated soda in that. And it's a kind of strange, bitter, sharp, swinging pineapple drink. Everybody drinks that around there. Well, here I am walking around the streets of Manly at dawn, and off to my right is the sea. And these insanely... Uh, Uh, amazingly, uh, spectacularly modern apartments that are growing throughout all of Australia. Far more hip-looking than any apartment that we have here. Now, why that is, I don't know. Uh, There is some wildly interesting modern architecture that is going on in Australia. These razor-thin apartment houses, for example, going up overlooking the sea. They're razor thin. They're, they're, they're like, uh, you know how thin the U.N. building looks? Well, they will have an apartment building that will, that will look, uh, it's standing on end, and the apartment will look like, uh, the building will look like almost like a sheet of cardboard, just sticking up, and it's dark red, beautiful. They don't use large amounts of glass like we have here, this beautiful thing. And the idea being, according to some of the people I talked to there, is that the entire apartment fronts the ocean. It's as though uh, it's one long, narrow, thin uh, apartment, and all of it has, uh, it fronts the entire ocean. It's fantastic apartments, wild. Uh, Now, it's very lush there, of course. I I have to point out to you that there's there's tremendous uh, plant growth and one thing and another there. Now, the one thing that I found interesting about Australia was reading the Australian newspapers, And here it is. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm walking up and down the street. I'm the only guy around. A couple of milkmen are making their rounds. And I see a guy going along and he's putting newspapers in little corner newspaper stands. You know, these little honor system stands where you pick up the paper and you put in a dime or whatever it is. And and, uh, I'm walking along the street there. And uh, here he is. He's sticking these things down in the stand. He's got a little car, a uh, a little truck, and he's delivering them around. And uh, I said, "How much is a paper?" And he told me how much it was. And I reached in my pocket and I fuddled around, and I didn't have, I didn't have the necessary change. And he wasn't selling papers. And so he says to me, "Oh, I says here, here, uh, have a paper on me." And he gives me a paper. And so at five o'clock in the morning, I, I had this Australian newspaper, and it, i it, had uh, been reading the papers, and this was one I'd never read before. And it was uh, it was kind of a, uh, a, sort of like a Herald Tribune type, I'm not quite totally conservative <laughs> and not quite uh, uh, far uh, wildly uh, democratic, I think just a, a conservative type newspaper. And I'm, I'm walking around the street carrying this newspaper and then I see a little coffee shop has just opened up on the corner. And it was opened up. It was not the kind of coffee shop we have. It's the early morning breakfast type of coffee shop where guys who have to go to work early come in and have breakfast, and they sell coffee, and they sell uh, little pastries, and they sell things like cappuccino, by the way. Espresso is a big thing all over Australia. And so they're selling cappuccino and espresso, and it's about now about 6.30 in the morning, and you can see the town is waking up. So old Shep is sitting there. I walk in, and I order myself a, a cup of cappuccino, and... Uh, and I order a little piece of pastry, and I'm reading the newspaper in the morning. And I, I tore out, I, I tore this out that morning. I tore a piece of the front page out, and I said, you know, this would make an interesting show, what the Australians think of Australia, you know, what, they, what they're talking about. And there was a, a, a piece ran right down the front page of the newspaper, and sitting right on my left are a couple of Australian secretaries, real great-looking uh, girls. You know, one thing about that sun there and all that surfboarding, everybody swims and surfboards and does everything else. They all have a, a fantastically muscular look about them uh, because of the outdoor life most of those people live. And that's, uh, you know, that's 12 months out of the year. And so they're all bronzed and tan. And it, uh, there's a, a very, very uh, open kind of sensuality about... The people there because of that sun and all that there's a, a curious quality of, of animal, almost animalistic uh, vitality about them it's just definitely there you cannot uh, you cannot put it down of course they live a, a little bit of a harder life than we do too they they play harder they play much harder than we do our idea of, of, of really playing you know is going out to Jones Beach and laying on the sand for eight hours you know that kind of thing that's going to the beach that's called swimming uh, <laughs> and uh, our idea of of, uh, of of a really strenuous afternoon is to uh go to some place up in the Catskills you know and watch Jerry Lewis. Uh, that's, a, that's a big outdoor afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of the flabby, this is W O R A M at FM New York. And you have the little money button there. And hit it for us, old man.
1: Here's Rolf Harris for McLean's. It's
2: McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. What a taste. What a zing. When you smile, all oh, the bells will ring. Get them white. Start tonight with McLean's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, isn't it time you tried the swing a new toothpaste that gets teeth irresistibly white? McLean's has a taste that's so lively, so dazzling that you can actually feel it whitening. Your whole mouth feels refreshed and invigorated. Come on now, you try new McLean's. You'll dig it. It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. What a taste! What a zing. <laughs> when you smile, all the bells will ring. Get them wiped. Start tonight with Mcclean's Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still using that sweet kid stuff?
0: Oh, man. Pop our toothpaste. Uh, you know, the funny part of it is uh, I've, I've heard these commercials. We've had them here on the show for a week or so. And they're probably the second worst commercials I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> in a nutty kind of way, and, and, and uh, I tried this toothpaste. Now, I'm, not, I'm just telling you an absolute fact. Now, I don't go around uh, uh, chauvinizing, uh, if there is such a word. I'm not chauvinistic about the sponsors that come on the show off and on. But uh, I tried this toothpaste merely because uh, it was there, and I tried it. And I want to tell you, it is, it, it, you know, I hate to say it, it, it really is a swinging toothpaste. I'm serious. The first time I, you like that, my eyeballs spin in opposite directions. It's wild. If you really seriously, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to say, in spite of those crummy commercials, you should try that toothpaste because it really is good. It's a wild, strange toothpaste. And uh, there it is. <laughs> I hate to admit it. You know, uh, now again, I, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of letters from people saying, Shepherd, what are you doing, selling on? I'm sorry. I tried the toothpaste. It is wild. I'll tell you, it's the first toothpaste you eat vaguely high, you know. It's strange. <laughs> well, anyway, getting back to let's get a couple of these commercials out of the way, and then I can really do a job, because I've got a tape I want to play for you. So hang on, this whole thing about Australia. Uh, now, I heard a guy today, I heard a man this morning. I have to explain myself, first of all. Uh, I do not pretend in any way, shape, or form to be an expert on any of the countries i visited. I did not go there for that reason. Uh, I heard a man this morning being interviewed on one of the shows and he's talking about people who go to a country and come back and they write a book and they become an expert on that country. They've been there three days. And I agree with him. This is a a, a real evil in our world. But I am merely trying to tell you what it feels like, what kind of impressions are crowded in on you, what kind of sensations you have if you are an American suddenly dropped into the middle of a foreign country. Now I'm not saying a, 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 a top-flight commentator who's there to analyze the war situation or to analyze the economic condition of the country. Doesn't it doesn't it interest you a little bit to know or to feel how 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 for example would you feel if I were to take you right now, just grab you by the scruff of the neck and drop you down, let's say, in Scotland, for 24 hours, and give you carte blanche, let you walk any place you want. Look at anything you want to look at. Just be there. Now, you're not there to try to prove whether or not the Scots drink Scotch whiskey. or In other words, whatever is crowded in on your sensibility. I think this is a fascinating thing if you have, uh, if you have that kind of imagination and can appreciate that kind of sensation. I like to go to a country with that feeling. Just drop me down there and let me walk around and i and i make sure that i get around as you can probably tell i i really get around in the country i i travel i i do as much as i can i walk and i I, uh... I, i try to experience the country i do not try to analyze the country because even the country itself can't be analyzed by those who are in it even by those who have lived there all their lives they cannot do you know any commentator on america an american who can analyze America? Forget it. It is an impossibility. Anything as gigantic and as complex and as all-enveloping and as non-objective as a country cannot be analyzed. And anybody who says, here is the definitive book on China, is preparing the way for a new doorway into Hades. Seriously, because it ain't true. It just isn't true. No matter how hard you work, no human being can do this. And so I try to bring to you my impressions of a country. Now, uh, before we do this, now I've got something really special that I want you to stick around to listen to. Uh, something that I did on a, on a Sunday morning two weeks ago in a hotel room in, uh, in Sydney. And I'd like you to hear it because you'll not hear this anywhere else in the world. Now, you know, you hear all kinds of anthropological recordings. You'll hear somebody will go to Borneo and record the sound of the natives. Uh, we, uh, we, we're, we're, there's a plethora of, recordings of, of uh, recordings of the Polynesian folk music. We hear uh, Spanish folk music. But are you a little interested in what the folk rituals, and they really are that, of, say, a place like Australia is? Now, I'm not talking about the aboriginal natives. I'm talking about a ritual that is a 20th century phenomenon in a major city in the world. And you just stick around. I think you'll hear something that you will never hear anywhere else. Now, let's get a couple of these commercials out of the way. Let's see. If your son or daughter has graduated from high school and plans to attend college this fall, they've been talking about this all day long. Anyway, it's a message of importance. Uh, Barrington Hills is in this newly established seminar on college prep. And it's a two-week course. And uh, they've got all kinds of things to offer, and I'm not going to belabor the point. If you'd like to find out about this, if you've got a kid that's going to college next fall and you want to ease him into it gradually, send your name and address to Barrington Hills, WOR, New York, 18. You know, we're living in the world of over-preparation. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm just reading the commercial, but I'm saying that people today are getting to the point now where they're sending kids to school at the age of 18 months to, quote, prepare them for life. In fact, uh, uh, there is a there's a whole well I don't want to get into this subject but anyway if you want to find out about this it's Barrington Hills W O R New York 18 and they'll send you the information on it uh, but uh, I, I've always been a little crawly around people who have books on how to fall in love as a matter of fact you know one of the, which 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 newspaper is running a series The Post yeah and leave it to the Post. The Post and Rose Franzblau, you know, that whole schlamoo, you know. (laughs) They're running a whole series on how to fall in love, you know. (laughs) I heard that today and I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I suppose next week they're going to run a series on how to get rid of hate in your life. That should be, that's a burning issue. Try that one on for size, Post. But uh, nevertheless, we've got another commercial. Let's see, do you need money, good hard cash to pay off your bills? or to spend any way you like on a big whoopee party. Well, here's how you can borrow up to 800 bucks without leaving your home, without calling on anyone to sign or co-sign, without making any visits to any office. If your age is between 25 and 65, send your name and address to Murdoch. Oh, Murdoch is sitting there. Murdoch, that's an old theatrical term. Murdoch, box 659. Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Murdoch. Oh, you finally got it. Murdoch Box 659, Poplar Bluff, Missouri. That's a big swinging town, I'll tell you. There's 84 people. There. Well, they've got money there, apparently. Now, you know, let's get, let's get back to uh, let's get back to real life here for a minute. Now, uh, I I was in Australia uh, and and sort of drinking it in. As much as I could. I take large numbers of notes. I hear little snatches of conversation. I've got a whole notebook full of strange comments I heard people make. Uh, different places that... Uh, in fact, I heard one guy... Did I tell you this, Skip? I'm sitting in a, in a, in a living room uh, with a group of Australians. And these were hip Australians. You might say... The, the, you know, in any society, there's a certain group of people who are on top of it who run the television station, who, uh, you know, the big wheels in the society. And I happened to fall in with a little group that particular day. Now, don't assume that that's where Shepard spent his time. Immediately, I'm going to get a letter from somebody saying, but you didn't see the real people. Well, I'm sorry. I spent a whole day in a supermarket running around talking to the little people. In fact, there was so little that I got a crick in my back bending over talking to them all morning. <laughs> but, uh, and living with them, too. Uh, However, this particular group, they were were discussing a local election. Now, you might find this interesting as an American. And the election had to do with one of their big national elections. And and there was a man who had proposed, one of the candidates, had proposed upping the defense budget. And uh, he said that he was going to raise the defense budget from X percent, I don't recall the specific figures, to X plus X percent. He was going to raise it. And he was proposing this. He says the world conditions mean that we have to do this. Indonesia is uh, looking with big eyes at us, and that's true. You know, you know, uh, Australia, uh, Darwin is only about an hour from Indonesia. Are you aware of that? Boy, you take a look at that map and you find that your geography is very shaky. Uh, I realized that and, and uh, knew when I arrived out there throughout that whole area how little we are taught about geography in our public schools and in our colleges. Genuine geography, Uh, as opposed to what uh, a meander is in a river. You know, I know about that. Uh, They're always teaching me about the principal exports of Peru. But uh, somehow they don't quite teach you about the country. They really don't. They don't tell you that that they got palm trees in Sydney. (laughs) They don't don't tell you about the the strange wine-like air that's around there. I'd love to write my own geography book now of uh, the, the, the atmosphere, the zeitgeist of countries I've visited. It would be very inaccurate, but it would be accurate as far as my senses are concerned. And so I'm, uh, I'm in Australia, and these guys are talking, and one, uh, one guy is, is very mad, you see. He's always protesting. Oh, he I says, think, I think that guy's out of his mind. He says, I, uh, uh, he's an idiot. Raise him uh, raising the uh, defense budget like that? I say, well, I, uh, I say this. I say we've got taxes enough. And I think what we ought to do is let the Americans defend us. Let the Americans defend us. And, and he felt very strongly this guy was really uh, taking advantage or trying to bilk the public of tax money because he didn't want to let the Americans defend them. And on the other hand, for 15 minutes, they were all sitting there arguing, telling me how, uh, how much they hated America interfering in other countries. Oh, I said, oh, I see. When it's your country, that's just called defense. When it's another country, that's called interference. And they sort of looked at me like, you know, kind of funny. And I said, well, they never quite thought of it that way. It's well, of course, uh, you're an American. I think you're a little defensive about it. A little defensive about it. I've been sitting here for two hours hearing you come up with this junk. <laughs> And, and, I, and I went out, you know, with my head spinning. I thought, like, well, gee whiz, wow. Now, I'm not, again, don't immediately write me a letter and tell me your husband lived in Australia, and it ain't that way. I'm describing to you an actual conversation I had with a top commentator on Australian television, who is an Australian. <laughs> now, I had that experience. Now, I'm not saying that that is a universal experience. It is one experience, and a curious one, isn't it? And, uh, by the way, the rest of the group agreed with him, all wholeheartedly. This uh, was a silly, ridiculous uh, guy that was running who wanted to raise the defense budget. Now, on the other hand, it's a wonderful country. It's, a, it's an exciting country. And every minute you're there, you feel all kinds of paradoxes. This, you know, you've heard that expression so many times. I have, that this country, that country, they always describe every ridiculous country you visit as a study in paradox. This has been said to me about every country I've ever known about. They say Japan, paradoxes. I heard a guy today talking about that. Uh, India, paradoxes. They talk about that. Well, I, I will submit to you that mankind is a study in paradoxes, because every country in the world is paradoxical. America, India, name it. It's all paradox everywhere. But very few places... Uh, from the standpoint of an English-speaking country do I see, have I ever visited, that is is more paradoxical, obviously and outwardly, than this country. It's a fantastic country for that. On the one hand, they're very, very Victorian. Very Victorian uh, in their their morality code. uh, uh, They're constantly... banning books there. They're constantly banning this. And yet, on the other hand, uh, here they've got a nightlife center that features truly obscene shows, openly and completely and running, Just to, and grandmothers go to see it. Now, what, what is it? Which is it? Where does it go? You don't know. Now, uh, everywhere I went, the Australians did not like the English. Now that's that. Now that's an experience I heard. Now, no, they did not like being tied up with England. Uh, they they uh, they love Americans, by the way, by and large. But their feeling, most of the Australians I talked to, they had a great anti-English feeling. Uh, I suppose it was the kid brother feeling. You know, after all, they were members of the Empire and the Commonwealth, and now, and they have a great pride. This is a thing you hear all over Australia. I heard it said by oh at least twenty-five people ranging all the way from Darwin down to Sydney and over to Melbourne, that the great pride they have is that almost all of them are descended from prisoners. They were sent as a penal colony originally. You know, Australia was originally settled by prisoners. They were like uh, Devil's Island. They were sent there out of England, and uh, they, 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 uh, in fact, their, their comment is, well, of course, you realize our population was selected by some of the greatest judges in England. That's their phrase. Now, I'm sitting at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning reading the newspaper, and here is a a clipping out out of the front page of a daily paper. It says, The kangaroo image of the Australian economy was out. The Australian Secretary of the Treasury, Sir Roland Wilson, assured prospective U.S. investors yesterday. Speaking at a seminar, he was emphasizing the point that manufacturing had an important place in the Australian economy, as well as rural and mineral resources and heavy industry. Contrary to the impressions of many outside our own shores, Australia does not consist exclusively either of waterless deserts, peopled by wandering tribes of Aborigines, tossing chunks of gold or iron ore at kangaroos, or of lush oases of green grass, on which muscular young men and women pursue a small rubber ball with contrivances made of sheep's intestines. Sir Roland told his laughing audience, True, we have sheep, a fact Sir William Gunn does not conceal these days and does not choose to conceal, and we owe a great deal to the intestines of the men who raise and shear them, but the kangaroo image is out. All right, that's what Australia is fighting. They're fighting this, they want to be, you know, a modern... Big industrial nation. Now, right below that, to show you an idea of what really happens in you know the nuttiness uh, that happens all over the world, happens in Australia too. It's uh, here's a headline right underneath it. It says, "Naked man stops traffic in King's Cross Road. <laughs> traffic came to a standstill and crowds formed on the footpath." when a naked man walked nearly 500 yards down the white line in the middle of Bayswater Road, King's Cross, last night. Now, I'll have to tell you what King's Cross is. That is the Times Square. It's a combination of the village and Times, uh, Times Square of Australia. It's m- millions of people on the streets out there. And this guy literally walked. Now, I'll read to you. It says, as he walked down the road, the man gesticulated wildly. Reactions were mixed. Some watched in silent wonder. Others laughed and pointed. And most of the women quickly turned away. People who saw the, the, saw the figure said that they thought the man started his march somewhere near the junction of Bayswater Road and King's Cross Road and continued downhill past the stadium before being picked up by police. Bob Kuzab, a bottle department attendant, said that although the man did not disrupt traffic, cars crawled to a standstill while the occupants stared and cheered. Everyone in the bar blinked and looked twice, he said. Mrs. M. Williams, who has a flat-facing Bayswater Road, said the man appeared to be sober. She said, although he was walking straight, he was throwing his arms around and smiling. <laughs> Perhaps he was doing it for a bet. You never know, around the cross. See, they got their village. Now, now that's that's. Uh, now I, I'm trying to give you the flavor of a, of, of a fascinating country. Now, exactly two, or let's see, it was April 25th. Beautiful sunny morning. Uh, I woke up about four o'clock, four thirty that morning, and I went down to the down to the desk clerk in the hotel. The hotel was filled with peli- oh, just filled to the brim with with elderly people. In fact, people of all ages, but there were so many elderly people all of a sudden there, with red faces and all scrubbed and short hair. The first thing that hit you in Australia is they wear their hair a little practically just a little top knot. They shave it all the way to the top of their head. Uh, big red necks, you know, and the women are uh, all in uh, in uh, sort of big uh, kind of bulky fur coats and one thing another. And the men the men uh, on their dress coat. Now these were just ordinary, not dress suits, I don't mean full dress, I mean just ordinary business suits, but they had medals. And four o'clock in the morning, I went down to the desk clerk and I got some instant coffee and he made some coffee and we sat around and we talked about The big event that was to occur that Sunday, it was Anzac Day, and he said, he said, you know, he says there is nothing in all of Australia to equal uh, this particular holiday, and uh, so I said, well, you know, what is it? He said, well, he said, I don't, I can't describe it to you. He said, it's a, it's a celebration of a great battle that occurred in 1915, but really, in a sense it is a memorial to all the men who have ever died and fought for Australia and for the world that we know, for, you know, the the people who fought in all the wars since 1900 or thereabouts, and he says it's a genuine memorial. And I said, well, when does it start? He says, well, it's starting in about ten minutes. He said, go down to... and he described where I should go, and sure enough, in the middle of town, in this silent city at 4.30 in the morning, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered having a silent religious service early in the morning on a Sunday. And I'd never heard about this in my life. So I, I observed that for a while and I came back and had breakfast and then it began. Uh, this, this unbelievable, uh, strange, uh, folk, historical ritual. And that morning I hung out of my hotel window because I happened to be right on the main street where it was all happening right below me. It was all going down past me and watched these marching figures. It was not like any parade I've ever seen in America, so get it out of your mind. It is not like an American parade at all. It is silent. The men march in groups all silently and the women who were nurses march. A whole fighter squadron will march past you. Men who were Spitfire pilots in 1940 in the Battle of Britain. Behind them will come their mechanics. And their company clerks, all grown, you know, a little gray and a little older. And in front of them, a man is marching, two men are marching, carrying their battle flag with the insignia of their unit and telling where they fought and how many, how many losses they had, how many men died and how many men are left. And their officers march, and they really march. It's not like our American religion parades where everybody's yelling. Now, I hung out of the window and recorded a little tape. You want to hear how it sounds? on Anzac Day, it is an unforgettable sound. Uh, This is tape number two that I'm uh, recording Uh, looking out of the Australian hotel onto Pitt Street here in the heart of Sydney, Australia watching the Anzac Day Parade. This uh, marks the 50th anniversary of the landings on Gallipoli by the Australian and New Zealand forces in 1915 of World War I, which uh, proved to be one of the greatest military disasters of all time. Um, this is an annual parade and an annual uh, observance here in Australia and throughout the Empire, and is undoubtedly one of the most uh, spectacular and colorful ritualistic observances of all the panoply and all the tradition of the British Empire of the 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, Going past us now is a spectacular troop of Scottish Pipers from the 9th New Zealand Infantry. Uh, They fought, I see by the banners, they fought at Lady, Uh, they fought in North Africa, and they also fought in Greece. beautiful sunny day here. A few clouds. The temperature stands at about 70, 75 degrees. And the streets are lined with hundreds of thousands of people. This observance began at dawn this morning uh, in the center of town with a uh, dawn service which uh, incidentally is symbolic since uh, the landings occurred in Gallipoli at 4.57 a.m. Uh, August, or rather April 25th, 1915 and this marks the 50th anniversary of that event. Uh, simultaneously with the observance of the dawn thing here, the dawn service here in Sydney, uh, the, a symbolic group of 300 Anzacs, as they were called, Australian, New Zealand Army Corps soldiers, uh, World War I designation, uh, rowed ashore on the shores of Gallipoli this morning in actuality, and they were met by a contingent of old Turkish soldiers who had fought against this group in World War I. Uh, instead of being greeted by bullets and bombs this time, they were greeted by the Turks bearing gifts and medals and plaques to commemorate the occasion. Uh, the The odd thing about all of this is that over the years, the Turks and the Australians have grown to be uh, highly respectful of one another as fighting men and as uh, people who went through an experience together. Here goes another group, this time uh, I believe this is the 17th Australian Lancers going past us right now. This is the sound, by the way, of the radio commentator who was describing the units as they went past on the radio. Maybe you can understand them.
1: It in you New Guinea, here on Gulf, Gulf, and in Borneo, either a or Brunei on base. Second, third time now, Friday, Quite a good representation, including one serving sailor who's wearing his father's ribbons on his right breast. Following the pioneer Air Battalion come the ASC, and closely after them, the ambulances. The Nine Field Ambulances with a quite a large sign on a yellow background a purple. Tea, the purple C having a a grey edging. So the car again, held up, while some of the units, some of the larger units, are just the 17s cad and are making the turn at the corner.
0: Now, do you want me to 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 play some more of this for you tomorrow night? Would you be interested in hearing, or maybe the night after? I don't think tomorrow night, or the night after. But that was recorded for those of you wonder what you came in on. That was a recording I made in Australia hanging out of the fifth floor window of uh, the Hotel Australian in the heart of Sydney on the moment of the celebration day of Anzac Day, which occurred April 25th. And uh, I have uh, later on in the tape, there's a a wild interview uh, with an Australian maid in the hotel. And she came into the hotel room when I was looking out of the window, and she hung out of the window with me, and we talked about this scene for 15 or 20 minutes, and you'll hear the delightful Australian accent, and there is part of that paradox. Uh, The Australians, on the one hand, they, they like to believe that they're separate from England. On the other hand, I have never been in a country that more celebrated the English way of life and the old empire, as you could hear on that tape. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Isn't it a strangely thrilling sound, isn't it? And, And the entire city was ringing with that sound. And you could hear those pipers for miles and miles and miles. We'll be back. In one minute and 15 seconds, Bruce Elliott will report the news.